large numbers in the United States, called Muslims, and they are persecuted, wow, more than anybody. Let's talk about all the horrors of Palestine or whatever. And so you have two groups, both claiming discrimination, but increasingly, well, the numbers of the Muslims are rising, the numbers of the Jews aren't, and uh, to people who are likely to be persuaded by those kinds of arguments, the claims made by the Muslims are uh, more powerful than the claims made by the Jews. Holocaust ended in 1945. The uh, Persecution, if you will, uh, it's not my term, I don't believe in it, is going on, you know, in the West Bank or whatever, that's still continuing today. And once again, I, I think that there's a very strong possibility that, uh, you know, Americans decided that the Jews were their Semites. Now we have these other Semites. And Americans might just say, uh, you know, we wash our hands of both of you. That, oh, Israel versus Palestine is apparently a more important political issue than the fact that, you know, the city that I live in has become a hellhole. Or that, you know, America is fighting wars halfway around the world forever, and there's nothing that can be done about that. But no, it's Israel versus Palestine, Palestine versus Israel. Uh, I mean, they should have seen this one coming, but they didn't. And... Uh, you know, to repeat, this is going to result inevitably and perhaps very quickly in a, a decline of Jewish power and influence. Kyle, you had something. Right. Um, so to talk about whether the Holocaust will be irrelevant, we can look at uh, a different event. We can look at the Armenian Genocide. The Armenian Genocide still has a tremendous influence on how we interact with Turkey and still is is a huge deal in the Armenian community. Probably will be for quite a, quite a long time to come. Uh, the notion that we uh, will just forget about these things, that's just not how it works. And the Holocaust in particular is likely to remain salient uh, for much longer because it was uh, the it, it was it was uh, a huge part or it was uh, an event coinciding with uh, the last great war uh, between great powers. And so that still has a tremendous influence on, on everybody in essentially every way because the last great war has a huge influence on how things shake out, right? If you just look at past periods in history, uh, you know, the last great war is really important. How, how long? Indefinitely. It's just important, right? It's important until, uh, until a new turmoil comes up and, and sweeps it around again. But, you know, I don't see uh, a lot of great wars uh, lined up uh, down, down the next few decades. It looks like we're in a pinkerizing world. And so in that world, you know, the World War II is still going to have salience in the next several generations. I, I mean, if we never have another great war, it'll have salience, extreme salience forever because it was the last big one. Um, so I, I think I, I just disagree with the notion that, that this is uh, vanishing from relevance. And as for the notion, uh, you know, uh, the, the issue of, of Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish influence, uh, Jews as a group basically only matter when they are uh, excluded or, or when they are threatened, because until then, they're not going to be acting in a cohesive manner. Like, like uh, despite the conspiracy theories to the contrary, uh, Jews are about as rich as you'd expect them to be, uh, given their, their, their intelligence. And so uh, they're not, they're in modus operandi. Uh, the thing that they're, they're gaining from is not some sort of uh, uh, Kabbalistic, uh, you know, uh, organization taking over things and, 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 uh, and, and scheming and conspiring. Uh, it, it is instead just a straightforward uh, reality. 
and in fact a reality where they have to compete against each other as opposed to cooperate with each other. The, the broad dynamic of of market uh, dominant minorities is one of competition where where they're where they're trying to to uh, to have the most in a limited space. Uh, so yeah, well wh- while there are uh, Muslims being anti-Semitic, uh, being being uh, talking about uh, <laughs> behind every every tree there'll be a Jew, but we're gonna find them because the, the tree itself is gonna sh- uh, shout out about how how there's a Jew behind here. Uh, when that ridiculous level of anti-Semitism is prevalent, uh, Jews are going to be uh, cohesive as a group uh, to that extent because they have to be. And frankly, Irish would be too if there were people who who for some reason got into their head that that uh, people of Irish descent need to be slaughtered, then Irish people would start to form a lot more, <laughs> a, a, a lot tighter bonds and become a lot more of a cohesive force uh, in, in politics. I don't think that it's it, it's a great thing that the Jews are forced to be cohesive in, in this way. I think it's, it's actually uh, a, a very regrettable uh, uh, thing, thing to, to require of people. And the, the great thing about America is that it requires this the least of all the countries of, of its constituent groups. So in America, it is the least true that you have to be uh, voting with your group interest. It, it, it is the most, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the most fair, the, the, the best instantiation of that kind of Anglo dream of, of a system that, that, that is fair and, and, and that, uh, that, that does not force you to act in these tribal manners. Kevin, did you want to add anything? Marshall McLuhan once said that people say that I can see into the future. He said, no, I can't see into the future, but I can see into the present. I would distinguish him from Kyle. Kyle's view on everything is that the future is going to be like it is now, only more so. That's not how history works. It simply isn't. We know, it it is reported, it is widely reported, uh, that uh, Jewish leaders around the world are lamenting the fact that the Holocaust is disappearing in collective memory. That uh, pretty much everyone who was alive at the time has now died from natural causes. And uh, surveys show that uh, rising numbers of young people don't know about the Holocaust or they can't name uh, any of the death camps. You know, I I was struck uh, by this uh, movie called Defamation, which was made by an Israeli filmmaker, that uh, Israel pays uh, for school children to visit Auschwitz. I don't know, that's not my idea of a good time, uh, but uh, they do this. And the movie showed directly how the, uh, the counselor, whoever was in charge of these school children, was absolutely infuriated that um, there was no weeping and wringing of hands, that the girls and boys thought this was, you know, it was a holiday, so they were going to have fun. And we're, there's a scene in this documentary where the leader bullies these children into weeping that uh, so apparently for Israeli school children to go to Poland to go to you know Auschwitz itself is not the powerful experience uh, that the Israeli government thought that it would be because obviously uh, younger Jews take the view well the Holocaust that was I don't know that was a long long time ago you know we live in Israel now Um, so you know that can't happen anymore and this is what happens with history, that, uh, you know, that memory fades. Of course, you know, the Hitler industry is, is still going strong. You know, I, I, I joked to Steve Saylor um, over a decade ago that if Martians landed on Earth, uh, the question that they would ask would be, take me to your Hitler. Because 
that's all they hear about. I'm obviously this Hitler guy must be running the world because it's just Hitler, 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 Hitler. You wouldn't, you know, the Martians uh, would be shocked to uh, hear that uh, Hitler put a bullet in his brain uh, in a bunker in a city which had been overrun and wrecked by his enemies. Kyle. Right. Well, we can, all we can do is extrapolate from uh, past trends as best we can uh, into the future. And so it's a very long scale trend that we're getting richer. And it's a very long scale trend that we're getting less violent. And so I extrapolate that forward into the future. Uh, this is not a bold move. It's just the least bold move that you can make, that these long-running trends will continue. Uh, to make the opposite claim is far more bold. Uh, and so y you have to understand, like, no matter what, you have to, unless you're making no decision, uh, if you're trying to predict the future, you have to be guided by something. Uh, Brando Fly in the chat uh, is is at it again, at it again with the, with the, with the claims, he says 85% of Jews vote for Democrats. Okay, Brundlefly, the question is, what percent would you expect to vote for Democrats given their background? So given controlling for everything else, controlling for uh, the places that they live in, the, the, the professions that they have, are they more likely to vote for Democrats? And how big is that difference? Because I rather suspect it's not that big. Um, then uh, he also says, Jews have a competitive advantage in a merchant world. This is, again, it's weird how these old anti-Semitic ideas just keep on popping up uh, in, you know, long after they have been thoroughly discredited. The notion that Jews are only suited to, to being merchants uh, is one that is fundamentally destroyed by the success of Zionism and by the success of, of uh, nuclear physicists in World War II. So the notion that, uh, so as it happens, intelligence is a general phenomenon, and it just generally makes you good at those sets of tasks which seem to be important in an industrialized world. Uh, it makes them make good uh, tank commanders. It makes them make good physicists. It makes them uh, make good engineers. It makes them make uh, these. Uh, it makes them good at at the set of problems that we seem to be faced with uh, at the moment. Does it make them superhuman? No, they're just been slightly higher in terms of IQ. I, IQ one 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 ten are the best numbers that we have. And so, especially at the tails, this leads to a different distribution. But uh, it, should, it should be remembered by people who try to say that the Jews control the, the entire uh, sweep of world history. Jews are a very small group relative to the large size of Europeans. So they're, they're a European group. They're a European group that is that is uh, moderately more intelligent on average. And so will be disproportionately important relative to their size and and, uh, you know, across many different axes. So uh, as, as the separate group, which has to be interested in politics for, for, for in order to, to survive, in order to thrive. Right, this group of people is going to be is going to be uh, doubly more likely uh, to, to be to be involved in 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 high positions uh, in those sectors. Uh, they'll be less involved in, in other sectors. So uh, that, 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 that's just a reality of, of our current time. And the notion that uh, Jews are just these merchant creatures who are good at 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 making deals and 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 maybe making dishonest deals. That's just a discredited, a discredited anti-Semitic notion, which, ha which has no connection to the current world, but has a very good and very strong connection to the Nazi propaganda of the 1930s. Okay, Carl, you were telling me before the show that you're joining the U.S. Navy. How would you feel about serving on the USS Harvey Milk? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to join uh, the Navy. Uh, in the Navy, we sail the seven seas. Yeah, um, Actually, it probably would be the branch I would join if I was to join any of them. And I'd like to be a nuke. 
you know, uh, in one of those submarines. I have some ideas there. But what about serving on a ship named for Harvey Milk? Would that would that cause you any concerns? What was Harvey Milk's actual story? He was, was he like a, a gay... gay gay politician in San Francisco, oh, okay. a pioneering gay politician who helped make well, us the more diverse, gay-friendly nation that we are today. Well, that really does fit in with the Navy's traditions, so yeah. uh, I, I guess I can't disagree with that decision. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I want to play a little bit from a, a TV show discussing a Jews and nationality show where their holes are in their arguments, and that's when they get frustrated themselves and start cursing themselves. Okay, so that's where I'd like to bring in some, you know, a news story that recently it's came out. Trump recently signed an executive action um, that now categorizes Jews as an ethnic minority rather than a religious group. And this has been very controversial um, among the Jewish community in the States. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your reaction was to that and, and what you think it means in terms of how it will impact um, the movement against anti-Semitism? So there are two things. First of all, we have to understand that Judaism is not a religion, and I say this always. Now, what is a religion? It's a belief system and a God, deity, book, or prophet. So religions start somewhere, and a belief system crosses over different borders, over, over different nations, and spreads to different peoples. So if you have an Argentinian Christian, a Nigerian Christian, and a Chinese Christian, totally different people. Maybe they have the same belief, but different histories, different aspirations, and different cultures. Jews are not a religion that crossed over borders. They're an actual native people from Judea that were forcibly displaced from their homeland, that spread all over the world. And in order to maintain their identity, they created a portable suitcase called Judaism. And ism is a man-made thing of Judea, becoming known as Judeans, mm -hmm. as our people. And we packed in our language, our culture, our history, our value system, our relationship to our higher power, and the aspirations of one day coming back home. And that's what Judaism is. It's not a secondary religion. It's our primary identity. Now, that doesn't mean we can't live amongst other societies and be productive. I completely agree with his description here. It's it's far more useful, and I think you get closer to the truth if you understand Jews primarily as a tribe rather than as a religion. Right, so why, why is there backlash against the idea that Jews would be established or considered an ethnic minority? Because that's essentially what you're saying, that right. Jews are, right? Because a lot of Jews in the diaspora do not understand their own identity. They think Judaism is kind of a secondary thing, and all of a sudden when they're told, no, you're a descendant of a people from Judea, you're the native descendants from this place, like your culture, value system, everything is about this place. We pray towards Jerusalem. We say, next year in Jerusalem, we smash the glass when we get married to represent the destruction of our uh, holy okay. site to one day come back home. Everything that we do has been created in order to preserve who we were, the Dovado and Shana Babushalem to come back to Jerusalem. And they don't understand that, so they have an immediate rejection to it. So if there's any one last message that you could give to our audience about what it takes um, to combat anti-Semitism, what would that message be? Because we're... Uh, I don't need to hear that. Let me go to the documentary In defamation. A teenager making its way to Maidanic concentration camp near Lublin. Okay. Okay. 
עם שוד ברזל שמחובר אליו כל מיני ברזלים ו... ו... כאילו, כמו שאתם רואים לפעמים בסרטים של המלחמות. ופשוט עוברת על גבי הסירים ו... ומכה אותם. סתם ככה. אוקיי? בז'ית עצמאת אדם שהייתה מפקדת זה. עכשיו, כמו שהסברתי קודם, שליש מהנרצחים פה נרצחו בגז, ושני שליש, פחות או יותר, נרצחו על ידי התת-תנאים שהם היו צריכים לחיות פה. This was my first time in Maidanek as well, and I could relate to the way the kids felt. The horrors were almost impossible to digest. But the kids just couldn't accept the fact that they wouldn't become emotional after all the preparation they'd been through. ובאמת, אני נותן לך טיפ שתמשיך לעקוב אחרי הגברת בהמשך. אוקיי? בסדר, תמשיך, תמשיך. יאללה, גיא, עירוני א', אנחנו ממשיכים. ללא טקס קבורה וללא כבוד אחרון, נשרפו מושמדי פה בתנורים האלה, העפר שלהם שימש לדישון אחר כך לגרמנים, הם ניצלו את היהודי מהעבודה שהוא נכנס במחנה העבודה. It occurred to me that after seeing the almost incomprehensible horrors my people have suffered, other people's suffering might seem less significant somehow. I wondered if any of the kids felt this way too. יש לנו את הרף הגבוה הזה, ופתאום אנחנו רואים בחדשות שעשו נגיד לערבי את הבית, שצה"ל פוזר, ואנחנו רואים, לא נורא, לנו היה דברים יותר גרועים, אנחנו לקחו ברכבות וגרמו ליהודים לראות ביהודים. זה כבר נראה לנו, יכול להיות שזה... אני דווקא חושב שאני אחרי... כי וואלה שאני צריכה... כי וואלה שאני רואה את זה בטלוויזיה... Nofar was not the only one thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in relation to anti-Semitism. 
Professor Norman Finkelstein, a Jewish academic from DePaul University in Chicago, has written a book called The Holocaust Industry, in which he accuses parts of the Jewish establishment of making cynical political use of the Holocaust. Dr. Finkelstein, you have some visitors? Whenever Israel faces a public relations debacle or comes under pressure to resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict, they start up this uh, extravaganza called the new anti-Semitism. As it's usually understood, anti-Semitism means an irrational hatred of Jews, born simply of the fact that they are Jewish. But that's not what's going on. Here it's a hostility born of the fact that the state which claims to represent them is engaged in quite brutal violence. I'm sure lots of people I meet have this, what you say, deep, you know, deep down inside, they have this kind of queasy feeling about Jews. I'm sure that's true. But did it have any real sub substantial repercussions on me in life? The answer is just no. There's a kind of pathological narcissism, naval contemplation. When you are the richest, wealthiest, most successful ethnic group in the United States, you've got the world on a platter, and you sit around and you're talking about anti-Semitism. It's just kind of shameful, I think. At the time I first interviewed Finkelstein, I didn't realize what a controversial figure he was in the eyes of the Jewish establishment. Finkelstein, the son of Holocaust survivors, has been labeled a self-hating Jew, a Holocaust denier, and a madman. I had interviews stopped at the very mention of his name. I know if you Google Norman Finkelstein and Holocaust denier, nowadays you'll get about 10,000 websites. Well, if I'm a Holocaust denier, if I'm a Holocaust denier, I would have to be certifiably insane. I would have to be clinically insane. Because, given who my parents were, for me to be denying the Nazi Holocaust, I'd have to be clinically insane. So you have to judge for yourself. You may disagree with me, but is it your impression that I'm clinically insane? Now, if you think I'm not, then you have to wonder, why are those 10,000 websites saying that? Recently, you know, they talk about uh, the new anti-Semitism, which is very related to Israel. And I've heard that from Jews outside of Israel, saying uh, Israel is the cause that anti-Semitism is now, uh, that we are suffering from anti-Semitism. Well, I, I would say that is nonsense. That comes from insecure Jews. Um, I think um, people use Israel as an excuse to rationalize and legitimize, because in many places of the world, anti-Semitism is, is not acceptable. It's not... It's not polite, it's not proper. But if you can camouflage it, if you can find a platform of, of a news event, of a political discourse, then you use it. And we find every time there is a conflict in the Middle East between Israel and somebody else, the level of anti-Semitism spikes. Why? Because the anti-Semites come out of their woodwork, and now they can express themselves in their anti-Semitism in, in what they consider a legitimate uh, licensed way. Strangely uh, enough, Foxman and Finkelstein agreed on one thing, which is that most anti-Semitic incidents nowadays fall under the category of new anti-Semitism. The difference is that Foxman says that anti-Semites found a new target called Israel, to which they could express their anti-Semitism. While Finkelstein believes that saying that is a cynical misuse of the term anti-Semitism. But attacks on the ADL seem to be coming from all directions. So today in America, there are two professors who are saying that Jews are more loyal to Israel than to America. Mearsheimer uh, and Wald. See, this is what Pat Mearsheimer and Wald. Mearsheimer and Wald. Steve Wald and John Mearsheimer are two academics from the universities of Harvard and Chicago who wrote a book called The Israeli Lobby. 
They claim that there is a lobby in the U.S. whose role is to support Israeli policy even if this policy goes against the interests of the U.S. The role of the ADL in this lobby is to silence those who criticize Israeli policy, saying they are actually anti-Semites in disguise. Walt and Mirsheimer were invited to Israel by Gush Shalom, a left-wing Israeli organization whose head is Uri Avneri, a former parliament member and a peace activist. I was very happy that they accepted our invitation and agreed to come here. Actually, they, we were a little bit afraid in the beginning that there may be some difficulty to get them into Israel, especially after what happened to Professor Norman Finkelstein, who had been arrested and kept, kept in prison, actually, and then deported. Steve and I have traveled all over the United States, and we traveled all over Europe, talking about the lobby. I have honestly been struck by how little evidence we've come across of anti-Semitism. This is not to say that we don't run into lots of people who are critical of Israeli policy and shake their head at what the Israelis are doing. הלובי הזה תומך בימין הישראלי, הוא מאולמרט ימינה, חביבם הוא ביבי נתניהו, וימינה מביבי, מעבר לביבי נתניהו, הימין הכי קיצוני. כאשר הייתה ממשלה שמאלית כאילו, היחסים היו רעים מאוד. ההתלהבות שצמחה. Okay, it's time for Theatre Thursday. Let's turn things over to Kevin Michael Grace. Whoops, whoops, my mistake, my mistake, my bad, Kevin. Uh, Once again, Kevin. Today on Theatre Thursday, we are discussing a film from 1951. It is called Scrooge. And it is an adaptation of Charles Dickens' famous novella, Christmas Carol. It is produced and directed by Brian Desmond Hurst. I'd like to start off by saying that I uh, recently watched the uh, Blu-ray version of this uh, film. And previously, I had seen uh, a DVD by a company called VCI, or actually Blu-ray. It was terrible. Uh, The presentation was, uh, was almost unwatchable. And... It's been restored, it's been fully restored, and uh, it looks great. What this new Blu-ray transfer brought home to me is how dark this movie is, how it is dark uh, both uh, lyrically uh, and physically. Uh, A great deal of it uh, takes place uh, indoors, in darkened rooms, or at night, and uh, the blacks uh, really shine in the restored version. But make no mistake, uh, A Christmas Carol is a horror movie. It's uh, the story of a man, Ebenezer Scrooge, a rich businessman, who has been alienated uh, from life. He, uh, given the choice between love and gold, He chooses gold, and he has no regrets about it. And he hates Christmas. Now, this seems odd now, a man who hates Christmas. But uh, I can tell you that the tradition of Christmas as the major feast of the year in England 
is about as old as the uh, the rise of high Anglicanism in the Oxford movement. That is to say, the 1840s. Now, the Puritans in both uh, England and uh, in New England they banned Christmas. That's right, they banned it. That uh, Christmas, uh, they argued, uh, had no scriptural basis. Uh, that it was a, a pagan or, or papish uh, festival that all good uh, religious people uh, should uh, not take part in. So that is to say, Eben, there were a lot of Ebenezer Scrooges uh, in in Britain. Now, I should also point out that this is a Christmas movie, and there is a great deal of uh, recitation of uh, words from Jesus Christ, but it is not a Christian movie. It's explicitly not a Christian movie. Uh, the, this is not a movie which you know tells people uh, that they should embrace uh, Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. In this movie, Jesus Christ is seen as a, an ethical leader. Uh, the movie endorses kindness over cruelty and selflessness over selfishness, but it does so for what might be called uh, altruistic reasons. So the film begins on Christmas Eve, and we are uh, reminded that Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, he had a partner named Jacob Marley, and um, two local businessmen come to the office, and they find out that Marley has been dead for seven years. In fact, he died seven years before on Christmas Eve. And that he had been a generous uh, subscriber uh, to their charity, uh, which uh, you know gave food and drink to poor people on Christmas. And Ebenezer Scrooge uh, said uh, that, well, that his partner was obviously stupid because these are stupid things to do. Uh, that Christmas is a humbug. And he repeats this bah humbug variations on this uh, many times. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is a capitalist. He is a social Darwinian. Uh, that uh, it's a question of competition. That the strong, the intelligent, they rise to the top, and the weak and the stupid fall off at the bottom, and they decrease the surplus population that uh, he takes it as a given that this is the way of nature and who is he to uh, reject nature. It's also the way of science. And uh, we were speaking on the book club last week of Andrew Carnegie, who was greatly influenced by um, Herbert Spencer, who was a very popular figure in 19th uh, century England. And Spencer's doctrine was, again, of this uh, Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest. So we're introduced to uh, one of uh, Scrooge's clerks, whose name is uh, Bob Cratchit. And Charles Dickens had this delight in, in rare uh, English names, names which seem fanciful to us because they've disappeared. Uh, besides uh, Cratchit, uh, we have Fezziwig. Uh, we have Stretch, Groper, Snedrig. And uh, so 
So Ebenezer Scrooge says uh, to Bob Cratchit, I suppose you'll be wanting all of tomorrow off. Well, if it's not too much, sir. And uh, yes, I'll give it to you, but uh, you're stealing from me. Because uh, the purpose of life is uh, work. It's not celebrating, and uh, Scrooge has a hard time imagining how Cratchit could even celebrate, considering how little he pays them. Uh, Scrooge is not one of those capitalists who has no understanding of the value of money. He knows it very well, and he knows that that Cratchit is uh, being paid a pittance. He has a large family, and he celebrates Christmas. And again, uh, to Scrooge, this seems um, utterly uh, ridiculous that uh, if Cratchit had any sense, he would have done what Scrooge did, which was to save his money to form capital and to transform that capital into a business. And having done so, you know, one would not need to, uh, one would not need to work for a pittance. I mean, again, it's obvious to Scrooge that anyone who works for a pittance deserves exactly what he or she gets. So Scrooge leaves the office, and there's a a really beautiful scene that takes place uh, shortly thereafter, which which is understated. And we have a return to it near the end of the film, where there is a blind beggar standing next to a building, and he has a a seeing eye dog. And as Scrooge approaches, the dog flees. This is, you know, the old cliche that the animals know. Well, this animal knows that Ebenezer Scrooge is a bad man. Indeed, uh, Scrooge is met uh, coming down the stairs by a man who uh, begs for more time to pay back the uh, 20 pounds that uh, he owes him. And no, you're not going to get any more time from me. Well, you know, I, I don't want, want my wife, you know, to be with me in a debtor's prison. And why should your wife, you know, pay for your stupidity? That uh, Scrooge is perfectly uh, content, pleased rather, with sending a man uh, to prison over the sum of uh, 20 pounds. When Scrooge arrives home, he is uh, greeted uh, with the uh, first of uh, supernatural uh, visitation, which he sees the the face of uh, Jacob Marley uh, on his uh, door knocker. Now, one of the things that is most impressive about this film is that most movies which involve the supernatural do not approach it in a realistic manner. Uh, When people are faced with uh, images which are impossible, um, typically the reaction is, uh, you know, panic or madness. How can I be seeing something that isn't there? And Ebenezer Scrooge, he uh, was acted by Alistair Sim, he shows this panic in a most effective manner many times in the film. Alistair Sim was a a comic actor for the most part, and this is a very dramatic role, except for the the last uh, act of it. Uh, he was a very ugly man as well, uh, such that his uh, his features uh, were, were very very uh, powerful. I suppose that's the advantage of ugliness in the acting business is that you don't have to worry about uh, you know appearing uh, pretty. Uh, 
you can give yourself to roles uh, with full abandon, you know, not worrying that you're going to let down your fan base. We soon see as uh, Scrooge is uh, pretending or is getting ready to go to bed that Jacob Marley, the ghost of Jacob Marley, uh, appears. And uh, I have to say that this is one of the most uh, frightening uh, roles uh, that I've ever seen. Michael Horden, the great Michael Horden, uh, plays him. He is uh, he's shackled. He's covered in shackles which clank on the floor. And he emits these hideous groans uh, which are terrifying uh, to listen to. And they certainly terrify Scrooge. Scrooge asks, uh, why the shackles? And he responds that he forged these shackles himself. The, the result of his, his selfishness and greed led to an imprisonment uh, beyond the grave. And he warns Scrooge that uh, he will suffer the same fate unless he uh, reforms. He uh, tells Scrooge that he will be visited by three ghosts during the evening. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So we are taken to uh, Scrooge's youth, and uh, he is uh, played by George Cole, uh, who later became famous for starring in the ITV series uh, Minder, uh, where he plays a uh, sharp, uh, cynical, spiv uh, businessman. In uh, in this movie, he is a uh, he's a callow young man, uh, certainly at the beginning. And he is visited uh, by his sister, uh, whom he loves. And he had been exiled, as it were, from the family, sent off to school for the reason that uh, his mother had died giving birth to him. Now, it seems, I suppose, to, uh, to us today that it's a strange attitude uh, for a man to blame his uh, own child uh, for killing his wife, but that has been a, a common attitude uh, throughout history. Scrooge is absolutely delighted to see his uh, beloved sister, and uh, there is a, he's reunited with his family, and then he is shown uh, where he got his start as a clerk, or clerk, as they say, in the employment of Mr. Fezziwig. And Mr. Fezziwig has uh, put on... Uh, party for his employees in which uh, there is singing and uh, dancing and they're dancing reels and they're having a final time and Scrooge remarks that uh, it was remarkable how much uh, joy Fezziwig brought into the lives of his employees with a you know the spread that couldn't have cost more than three pounds and this is really the first indication uh, that we get that Scrooge's He's beginning to look at the man that he's become in a, a different way. I have to say that George Cole is uh, is quite good in this role. We see a, a transformation in him from the, the callow young man that we saw to a, a calculating figure who decides that um, loyalty isn't the thing, making money is the thing, so he should uh, desert uh, Fezziwig. And uh, work for uh, Jorkin, who is a, obviously a man who's going places, a very modern man. 
as he points out. At the beginning of the movie, we learn that Scrooge is um, estranged from uh, his nephew, his only living relative. And it is later revealed in the first uh, flashback scene that the reason for it is that his beloved sister died giving birth to this child. Now, Scrooge is a clever, hardworking uh, young man who saves his capital. And there is a quite delightful scene where uh, Jorkin, who's a character uh, invented for the movie, who's uh, attired in a really flamboyant dress, that at a board meeting of his company, it's revealed that he has looted it to uh, the sum of, uh, I believe, something like 3,000 pounds, which was a stupendous amount of money uh, in those days. And he very cleverly says to the board members that, um, well, what are you going to do? You want to send me to Botany Bay? You want to send me as a convict to Australia? Well, what what that will result in is a public scandal, a collapse of confidence in this firm, and indeed a total collapse of the firm. And Scrooge and Marley, uh, looking about as evil as I've ever seen two men look, they're, they're biding their time, and they say that they have a solution to this, which is they are going to buy up the company themselves and push out the remaining uh, directors. Now, the ghost of Christmas present, it reveals to us the life of, of Bob Cratchit. Uh, he's a loving father and a loving husband. And he has one of his sons is is lame in in, uh, in one leg, Tim. They call him Tiny Tim. Now, I suppose the film could be and has been criticized uh, for schmaltz in that um, the depiction of Cratchit's family is uniformly uh, positive. Uh, they don't seem to they don't seem to be embittered by their poverty by their uh, circumstances. You know, many, many people who are, are handicapped are, are bitter at the world uh, because of the, uh, uh, the fate that they've been dealt. Uh, but Tim is a uh, lovable child. The, the only discordance uh, that we get is from uh, Cratchit's wife, who is played by Hermione Baddeley, that uh, Cratchit proposes a toast to Scrooge because, you know, he is the founder of the feast because he pays the wages, the pittance that enables, you know, it enables uh, them to have um, two, two glasses of gin punch, even the children, and a, uh, and a goose. And she is, uh, she is rebuked uh, by uh, Bob for uh, her uh, bitterness that it's a Christmas. Christmas is the season of, uh, you know, goodwill to all men. And so uh, she should all abide by the rules. Now, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, I would say that this is the, in one way, the weakest of the three uh, flashback segments, because we learned that uh, a man has died, a rich man has died. And, Ebenezer Scrooge knows he's going to die. He's clearly an atheist. He has no uh, care about what's going to happen to him after death because he believes that death meets extinction. And this is what happens to all men. 
the rich man who has died is, of course, himself. And um, I have to say, despite what I just said about the weakness, we the, the cliche of the, uh, I, I don't know, the noble poor man is freely indulged in in this uh, movie. But in the third segment, The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, the gleefulness with which these cockneys uh, loot uh, their employer's house and haggle over how much they can get for everything that they've stolen. It's uh, really quite uh, arresting. Now, Scrooge, it would seem, this is a, the final lesson that he has to learn, that he fully regrets the man he's become because he's worried of his reputation after his death. Again, you know, we don't really have any control over uh, our reputations after uh, we die. And in any event, uh, within a generation or two, uh, most men who ever lived have been completely forgotten. Scrooge uh, wakes up on Christmas morning, and he is a transformed man. Indeed, it's been observed that if you were to speculate that he had, in fact, gone insane, that his behavior uh, in the final act of the movie would be not much uh, different. Uh, first thing he does is walk to the window, open the window, and he sees a boy, and he calls out the boy, and I want you to have you know, the biggest goose in London delivered to Bob Cratchit. And uh, then he meets his, uh, his housemaid, um, who he rather terrifies. It looks as if he's about to you know, attack her, physically attack her or, or rape her or something like that. But he's just he's delighted you know, to have another person in the house. For such a rich man, uh, Scrooge was notably stingy. That is to say that he, he lived much worse than he could have. And clearly one of the reasons why is that uh, he begrudges paying money uh, for servants, uh, one would expect a, a man as rich as Ebenezer Scrooge to have a half a dozen servants, at least. But uh, he has a Christmas bonus for uh, his housemaid, which is a guinea, uh, 21 shillings or one pound and one shilling, which is an enormous bonus given that we learn that she is being paid two shillings a week, uh, a salary which he promptly increases uh, to 10 shillings. He uh, visits, he reunites with his uh, estranged nephew, apologizes to them for his uh, behavior, and even dances. And it's a curious thing that one of the songs that is uh, woven into the soundtrack, which appears at two occasions in the movie, is the uh, child ballad called uh, Barbara Allen, which is you know, one of the saddest songs uh, ever written. And uh, Scrooge ingratiates himself with Bob Cratchit, and he promises to be a good friend to uh, Tiny Tim and to help him. And we see that later that uh, Tim has uh, lost his crutch, that whatever he was suffering uh, from uh, has been uh, cured. And there's a callback to a scene I mentioned early in the film where uh, Scrooge approaches the beggar again, the blind beggar. This time the dog does not run off in terror, and Scrooge gives uh, the man money. And we learn that uh, Scrooge has become uh, beloved uh, in London 
is known as the you know, kindest man uh, in town. Uh, this is a, uh, a harrowing movie uh, for most of it. Of course, it has a happy ending. I would say that it's a, uh, you know, less harrowing uh, than, you know, some some films, some Christmas films. And I'm thinking, of course, of uh, Jane Stewart. Uh, and um, It's a Wonderful Life, which is, you know, It's a Wonderful Life has a happy ending. But, uh, you know, the horror and the terror that uh, James Stewart has uh has undergone in the movie and his beastly behavior uh, to his wife and uh, his children. These seem to me to be things that would be hard uh, to uh, get uh, over. Now, one of the things that It's a Wonderful Life has in common uh, with The Christmas Carol, a.k.a. Scrooge, is its insistence on the power of money. The ability of money to solve people's uh, difficulties. And, you know, I, I mentioned that it's not a Christian movie, and It's a Wonderful Life is not a Christian movie a- as well, uh, because the message is that, you know, given enough money, fairly distributed, and, you know, given enough kindness as opposed to cruelty, then, you know, that is religion enough. Uh, one does not need uh, Jesus Christ if everyone just decided to be nice and everyone decided uh, to be uh, charitable or altruistic. I was uh, I was rather surprised to see that uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had a, a little contest uh, for people to vote through brackets of the greatest Christmas movie ever made. And... Scrooge was not even on the short list. Very, very strange because, um, I don't know, I mean, generations of Canadians were grew up with this movie. I saw it uh, every Christmas, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it became a, a family tradition that uh, we'd watch White Christmas on um, Christmas Eve, and we'd watch uh, Scrooge on Christmas Day. And uh, I don't know. Perhaps, uh, perhaps it's it's a movie that that it, that is too dark. Perhaps it's now considered unsuitable uh, for uh, children. But uh, I remember KBOS uh, in Bellingham, Washington, which strangely enough was a kind of a binational uh, TV station. Uh, it, it sponsored a presentation uh, every Christmas that was hosted by Patrick McNee, who plays the young Jacob Marley. Uh, in this movie, and of course, uh, Patrick McNee uh, later became famous worldwide for playing a John Steed in the Avengers. It seems like every every British actor of note that was alive at the time uh, is in this movie. Uh, Hattie Jakes plays Mrs. Fettiwig, and uh, Peter Bull, who uh, you might remember as the uh, Russian ambassador from Doctor Strangelove, uh, narrates the film. The great uh, Ernest uh, Thesiger uh, plays uh, the Undertaker. Uh, Miles Mallison, uh, another uh, rather spectacularly ugly man, uh, appears as one of the uh, one of the thieves uh, in the uh, graveyard scene. Uh, 
this is a, an outstanding, uh, outstanding cast. Uh, the direction, I think, is quite good. I posted to Twitter a really artful uh, composition uh, from the movie where uh, we see young Ebenezer Scrooge twice, and we also see the reflection of his head. Uh, the cinematography was by C.M. Uh, Pennington Richards. Now, everything about this movie is uh, first class. And uh, I found it uh, in my recent viewing to be as enjoyable uh, now as I've ever enjoyed it. And in fact, you know, going back to what I started with at the beginning, talking about the Blu-ray transfer, this the movie is now better looking than it has ever been since it played in uh, the theaters, you know, 60 years ago. And so, um, you know, don't have any uh, qualms on that score. I mean, it abs- it looks absolutely outstanding. And I think that it is uh, it is not only a you know a, a faithful rendition of one of the best loved uh, stories ever written. It also it also adds to it. It adds to it in some uh, changes in the plot and uh, in the you know the visual presentation. It's a it's a dream adaptation, and uh, to my mind, it is the uh, greatest Christmas movie. Thanks, Kevin. I, I love the film. Now I'm a uh, I'm a free market kind of guy, so. Uh, I, I was struck by that there's no evidence that uh, Scrooge cheats in business, and that corresponds with my experience in reality. Is that every miserly, difficult employer that I've ever had or known has been scrupulously honest in business, and most every charming, generous employer I've known has uh, cut ethical corners that the difficult, miserly employers. Would not. So people are complicated. Uh, this Scrooge guy, he seemed to be playing by the rules of the game. Now, he was an unpleasant person. He certainly wasn't bringing joy to people. But uh, people like him, uh, they, they, make, they make capitalism work because at least he is playing by the rules of the game. And I think other people will find in life that it's often these difficult, obstreperous, uh, miserly people or also equally punctilious with observing not just uh, the laws of the state, but also uh, general moral laws that uh, they're much less likely to, for example, commit adultery, uh, sleep with your wife, uh, do things like that. Uh, I was struck... Yeah, I made made a bunch of notes and trying to uh, now trying to read my read my read my writings. So yeah, I remember I had uh, a couple of uh, bosses in the landscaping business, and they were paying me four dollars an hour, and then they would charge other people uh, six dollars an hour for the labor of people like me. And the bosses would make the point that uh, if I'm not making at least $2 an hour from you, it's just not worth it. And so uh, the the clerk, it wasn't as though he had an abundance of other jobs out there that would have paid him more and uh, treated him better. So Scrooge was not a charming employer. He was not a generous employer, but obviously he was paying approximately market rates. And uh, frequently in life, our choices are between horrible and worse. And I think that's 
that's what was going on here. And the reason that uh, a Scrooge-like character would be able to do a massive amount of good after having this kind of spiritual transformation is that I expect he has been husbanding his, his resources. He was saving money. And uh, he had conducted business, I would suspect, by by the book, by the law, and therefore he he now has the potential to do a great amount of good. Uh, many generous, charming people I know are spendthrifts. They're they've been irresponsible with money. They have nothing really to to uh, contribute to society in, in a, a large financial sense because they have been so careless. So obviously Scrooge was highly unpleasant, uh, but I don't think he would have been the type of guy who would have, uh, say, scraped your car and walked away without leaving a note. I don't think he was the type of guy who would have uh, slept with your wife. I don't think he's the type of guy who would have been uh, doing illegal things in business because I think he would have accurately seen that it just would not have been worth the bother, would not have been worth the risk to engage in uh, illegal behavior when he could make a living uh, legally. So for, for some people, when when uh, employees become too onerous or uh, wages become too onerous, they simply give up. It's It's a tremendous strain to have employees. And it, it puts a burden on a lot of businessmen, and uh, eventually it just becomes too great a strain. And they say, you know, why do I need to deal with this trouble? You know, I've I've developed some capital. You know, let me just go off and enjoy life. But uh, Scrooge wasn't uh, a hedonist. He was he was working, and if he was operating according to the law then he he was making the world a better place like let's take uh, some tech some tech guru who improves the lives of millions of people by producing superior computers uh, i would wager that such a person does the world much more good than if instead of uh, giving the world improved computers he'd uh, devoted himself to working with the homeless or to doing you know meritorious acts with with lepers so Frequently, I think it's, it's people like Scrooge, as long as they're obeying the laws of the land, who also contribute a tremendous amount to society. And the generous, charming people just as often are cut a, a ton of uh, ethical corners. Now, obviously, it's far more pleasant to be around charming people than unpleasant people like Scrooge. It's far more pleasant to be around generous people than mean people. Uh, but uh, I, I see Scrooge as having a tremendous number of virtues that go along with his obviously ugly qualities. Thanks, Kevin. I have to say that uh, you know Scrooge, at least the Reformed Scrooge, differs from Andrew Carnegie in that, well, Carnegie was an atheist uh, as well, and Carnegie was famously a disciple of Herbert Spencer. Uh, Carnegie believed that his uh, tremendous charity after he retired from business justified uh, his life. He never seemed to understand that his enormous wealth uh, had been based on, you know, breaking the backs of the people who worked for him, for working them to death frequently uh, for very little wages, whereas Ebenezer Scrooge uh, decides that he's a very wealthy man and he can well afford uh, to pay his, uh, his, his housekeeper and his employees more than the pittance that he does. So, you know, Scrooge, uh, he is, he's charitable generally, but he is charitable 
in the particular in his uh, personal life after his Reformation. What do you think about my my idea that people are incredibly complicated and that usually their best qualities are also their worst qualities, that the generous, charming person is much more likely to sleep with your wife than the mean, punctilious miser, and uh, that uh, people who are incredibly miserly and difficult and punctilious uh, also tend to be much more likely to obey the law, uh, both secular law and uh, basic uh, moral laws. And so for every you know wonderful trait, there's usually a dark side to that trait. And usually to most uh, uh, unpleasant traits, there's, there's just as frequently a, uh, a good side to it. I, I suppose there's something to that, but I mean, one of the reasons why Ebenezer Scrooge has been so powerful in, in literature on film is that he seemingly goes out of his way to to make himself miserable. Now, when your long lost nephew shows up on Christmas Eve to wish you a Merry Christmas, uh, why would you react the way that he does? I mean. I don't like you. You're a fool. I don't believe in Christmas. Go away. Yeah. When, when, when someone is being kind to you and, you know, the nephew had nothing to gain from this. We see we see Scrooge eating uh, his dinner in this mean little tavern. And then we see him uh, in his vast mansion, which is, uh, you know, barely lit. Uh, where he has to huddle by, you know, the fire, because clearly he's, there's only one fire been lit in the house. And, he, you know, he has one housekeeper instead of, um, you know, hiring people who would make meals for him. That's what, you know, he, he drinks his, uh, what, his warm milk yeah. by the fire. He, you know, there's a scene early in the film where uh, he he's engaged to a beautiful and kind woman who has no money. And he insists to her that it doesn't matter to me. I love you more because you have no money. And then we see, we see him changing. Uh, we see him becoming distant to his fiance because he is going to thought, yes, it is important. If this woman has no money, that means I'm going to need to spend my own money. To support her. Now, given, as I say, that his fiancée was beautiful and kind and seemed to be deeply in love with him, what kind of a man would reject that so he could, you know, have a few more pounds? It's, 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 really, it's really irrational. And I, I suppose that's one of the messages of A Christmas Carol is that life is full of pain uh, and, you know, life is full of misery, but, uh, you know, one doesn't go seeking it as Ebenezer Scrooge has. Yeah. Let me uh, play a clip here from a black nationalist, Dr. Umar Johnson, talking about American politics. Mr. <laughs> Cory Booker was in the lobby. I respect Senator Booker. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of black politicians who do some very good things. Mm hmm my concern with black elected officials, though, mm -hmm. is that most of them are married to the Democratic Party, yes. as is the black community as a whole. And that's a problem mm -hmm. because the Democratic Party is a white racist institution mm -hmm. and it is just as racist as the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So if you are married to the Democratic Party, that means you are a part of their agenda. Mm -hmm. You must be a team player. 
So if the best interests of the black community conflicts with the Democratic Party's agenda, you're obligated as a member of the team to carry out their agenda. And so I'm at a point in my life where I don't vote for black politicians unless they are independent candidates. Because only if you're an independent candidate will you be an independent thinker. And if you're not an independent thinker, I can't give you my vote. So you haven't voted in a long time. <laughs> a long, Absolutely. long time. Do you think that we need... Uh, Kevin, are the Democrats the real racists? I don't... It's obsession with finding racism everywhere. I suppose it's similar to the obsession of finding anti-Semitism everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I understand all about the Democratic plantation. I understand that uh, the welfare system is perhaps not in the best interests of black people, you know, how it divides families and why it means that, uh, you know, most uh, black children are raised without a father in the home. And yet, when it comes to election time, you find 90 to 95 percent of black Americans voting for the Democrats because they give us stuff. And the Republicans they might decide to stop giving us stuff or there's more stuff that we want. And we know the Democrats will try to give it to us. The Republicans might not be so eager to, um, you know, to give us stuff. I mean, this, uh, you know, it, it's always dodgy to make, you know, the argument of what's best for other people. On the one hand, you know, uh, blacks in the United States, uh, you know, they complain at, at great length and at great volume about how they're treated but on the other hand, if you look at if you look at surveys of which group in the United States has the uh, the highest view of themselves, it's uh, it is adult, adolescent, black males. <laughs> you know, uh, there there are you know swings and roundabouts to every way of of doing things. Now. Uh, you know, the, the, the welfare system exercises, you know, constraints it, it forces or it, it, you know, guides people into forms of behavior which might be seen as destructive. But, um, you know, I really think that a lot of, you know, all of this wailing about racism is, is pro forma. And beyond being pro forma, it's, it's part of the game. Because let's look at affirmative action. Uh, affirmative action was supposed to be a temporary measure. And what Sandra Day O'Connor uh, was asked about, you know, think it was going to be around by the year 2025? Well, now we know it's going to be around forever. But, you know, if blacks started, if they stopped howling about racism, then, you know, politicians might say, oh, well, seeing as racism is as big a problem as it was when affirmative action was legislated, you know, we can get rid of affirmative action now. No, affirmative action is never going away because, you know, racism, as defined by the elite, is uh, is never going to go away either. It's a marriage made in heaven. Okay, I want to play a little bit from the documentary Defamation. It's about the Anti-Defamation League. הם לוחמים נגד ביקורת על ישראל, לפני דברים לחלוטין שונים, כמעט שאין את השאלה באמריקה, זה, זה אגדה. אין, ממש אין. לו, לו הייתה, זה, גם השלולה הייתה מתנהגת אחרת. אין, אין. 
התופעה הזאת שנקראת אנטישמיות היא קיימת רק בתקשורת הישראלית ועל ידי כל מיני פונקציונרים יהודים בעולם שהם מתפרנסים מזה, שהם לוחמים באנטישמיות. איפה יש אנטישמיות? אין כלום. saying that anti-Semitism is a Jewish invention, this is a left-wing Israeli speaking. Thinking about America today, America Jews are so strong and so influential, they are scared of their own shadows. So there are lots of anti-Arabs and anti-blacks, but the Semites you need a magnifying glass to find them in Abe Foxman's spokesman, Ariel Sullivan, was the last person I expected to see at the event. What was he doing here? Look, Abe, they mentioned the ADL a couple of times in their, in their talks, and like I told you, they, they were false, these things. And I, I went up to Walt, but he was grounded. People said, listen, I'm from ADL, I'm Ariel Sullivan, and, uh, and those two things you said about the ADL are incorrect. I got a lot of interest from the foreign press. I don't know about the Israeli media, though. Was there an Israeli media here? Ani me'aligan agadash matzah. This is Kiro Kolosman, ADL, ADL. I'm a Liga. Yeah, the way I should be a Liga. Me, I'm a Liga. Yeah, I'm a Liga. I'm a Liga. I'm a Liga. It's me. So this left-wing Arab says that what Walter Misham is doing is uh, blessed work regardless of defamation against them. And uh, the ADL says, I thought Gush Shalom was a small, small group. And uh, the guy says, the little money we have we spend on important things. The most important thing is finally achieve reconciliation between Palestinians and Jews. And he's saying it's no. The whole world was shaken by Walter Mishheimer's book, but the Jewish establishment certainly was. Why do you two such established, credentials, respected academics At the annual ADL convention, the Israeli lobby book was the center of attention. In the foreign office in Israel, there was a three-day convention dealing mostly with the issues raised in the book The Israeli Lobby. Never before had a question of whether anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are the same thing seemed so important. Experts and speakers from all over the world said the same thing, that those who attack Israel are doing so simply because they are anti-Semites in disguise. We thought people who would hate us, who would be our enemies, would be thugs and lunatics yelling kite, and instead they are soft-spoken college professors explaining to us how we have the apartheid state. We were unprepared. So let this conference draw a line in the sand. If you're an enemy of the Jewish people, then we will fight you with all our might for ourselves and for our children and for our children's children. Who would we be if we did not? And we will prevail. After three days, something happened which was more or less the equivalent of a bomb being thrown into the room. If you came down from space, you would think, having looked at this conference, that there was absolutely no problem in the West Bank or in Gaza. One element of the reason why so many people around the world are angry with Israel is because of the continuing settlement and occupation of Palestinian land and because Israel, which has state power, has not done enough to end the occupation. One of the reasons. Such an occupation cannot be sustained without racism, without violence, 
and without humiliation against the people who are occupied. Thank you. I, I don't get it. I just don't get it unless you were ironic. It's uh, Dina Parata, Professor. David, yes. I, I would appreciate your work. We invited you to speak. Yes. What you did today was a kind of preaching about looking to human rights that we don't have. This is more or less what you said. We there there are problems with human rights. We don't say that. What do you say? No, I choose that? to say something which has not yet been said by everybody. It's very simple. No, not for the provocation, because Palestine was not mentioned it was in this mentioned conference. All over. Not once, maybe by Gil. It was mentioned all over. It was mentioned yesterday over. as Palestine is the anti-nation. Palestine is the one unique ma nation which doesn't have the right to exist. It was mentioned... No, no one said that. Oh, 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 oh. Come on, no one said it. Don't go too far. Palestine is the anti-nation. What do you think that means? And where do you think that terminology comes from, the anti-nation? What you were saying is that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are two different things. They are two different things. Sometimes they are the same thing. And it's kind of ironic, really, that I was seen by some people as a sort of wild-eyed radical, because where I come from, I'm denounced as a right-wing, neocon, Israeli-supporting, anti-Palestinian racist. Um, Okay, just some excerpts there from the excellent uh, documentary Defamation, which you can find and view for free on YouTube. Kevin, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, the uh, the filmmaker Yoav Shamir said that uh, he wanted to make this film because he was hearing about this explosion of anti-Semitism in the United States. And he said, you know, having been born in Israel and lived his whole life there, he'd never experienced anti-Semitism. Now, you know, if you want to talk about the numbers of Israelis killed by uh, terrorist attacks, you know, launched from the West Bank or from uh, Gaza versus the number of Jews uh, in the United States uh, killed by terrorist attacks, well, obviously the number in Israel is much higher than it is in the United States. And, of course, Israel has a tiny population compared to the United States, so it's obviously felt more deeply. But you see, uh, Shamir has this confidence uh, about himself because he's a Jew living in the Jewish homeland. And that is something that uh, American Jews don't share. But just one other thing, one last thing about this. Again, you know, whose side are you on? The Israelis or the Palestinians? Well, you know, that's not my fight. I'm not particularly interested in it. I, you know, I'm not a supporter of the Palestinians, and I don't moan on and on about Israel. But, you know, you can see why people are baffled by this. Like, why do I have to pick sides? How did this become the most important dispute in the world? Now, there's no question in my mind that, uh, you know, a fair number of the people who uh, equate Israel, you know, with the Nazis or South African apartheid, they don't like Israel. Afar, you know, this is motivated in some people by hatred of Jews, but in some people it isn't. It's, it simply isn't. Again, that brings me back to my question, like, why is this supposed to be my problem? But, you know, I really uh, enjoyed this film. You know, he, he goes and he talks to the uh, head of the ADL, Abraham Foxman. Oh, so this explosion in anti-Semitism. Okay, I want to see it. What, what are the examples? And according to Wikipedia, they can only list minor incidents such as websites with inflammatory comments, letters from employees denied time off for a Jewish holiday, or people offended by a cop's use of the word Jew. 
and then you know goes out to the he goes out into the streets in, in a black neighborhood and he mentions the protocols of the elders of Zion and they all know about it. <laughs> that was a real eye opener, I must say. Okay, if people would like to support the show, Kevin's PayPal is Kevin underscore Grace at hotmail dot com. Mine is Luke is back at gmail dot com. Good night, everyone.